Bibles, you're all ready to blast off. I should do it with you, 3, 2, 1. Uh, but uh, let's open up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We've been going through the book of John, uh, slowly but surely. More slowly than surely. We talked about the way, we talked about the truth. So you probably know what we're talking about today. Uh, John chapter 14, down by verse 6. Um, and it's, I know we have a lot of folks traveling, and it's vacation time, and, and, and here's what happens on vacation a lot of times. It's not bad or evil, but how cliche it is to sit back on your vacation and just proclaim, ah, this is the life, right? And that's what a lot of people do. That's what I've probably done. I'm sure that's what you've done. And, and when we do that, we're thinking about ourselves, We're thinking life is about our comfort and our pleasure and our ease and our desires and our enjoyment. We think this is what life is all about or really is all about or this is what life should should really be all about. Amen? I'm not the only one that's ever thought that? Okay. But John 14, 6, Jesus says very famously, and you know the verses, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We're so, and I'll say it for myself, I won't say it for you, I'm so selfish. I think that life is supposed to all be about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. How contrary to Jesus Christ who says, I am the life. I am the life. I am the life. What kind of life is the life Jesus Christ claims to be? Well, the author of the Gospel of John and the Apostle John, they're the same person, he actually heard the heartbeat of God, right? He leaned on Jesus' breast at supper. And Four times in the Gospel of John, he mentions this little phrase, the life, the life, the life. And as we've learned from Staten Island, from Pastor Mike, and many of us here who are visiting from there, uh, we've learned that when you see a fourfold mention in the Bible, when you see something mentioned four times, that is God drawing attention to something. That's God establishing a truth about something. That's God trying to set up a little foundation a little witness for you to pay attention to something. So I want to think about what is the Lord trying to tell us about the life that we have? And what should believers think the life we have is really all about? What is this thing we've got? The life we have in Jesus Christ. The life we have in Jesus Christ. We sing about it. We boast about it. We thank and we have the time we forget about it. What is it? What is the life? And I'm hoping at the end of this message, you might sit back and think about your Savior and go, this is the life that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's your title. This is the life. Let's pray. Lord, we love you today. We thank you today. Thank you for giving me life today, Lord. I thank you for the physical life, Lord, but even when that perishes, Lord, thank you for the life that endures. Thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. And I pray today, Father, help us, Lord, to understand that life a little better the life that Jaden just received, the life that some of us have had for weeks and months and years. 
I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit might open our eyes to really apply the word of God to our heart, be different when we walk out than when we walked in. And only you can accomplish that, dear Lord. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. Save us from religion. Save us from vain repetitions. Save us from going through the motions and open our eyes to your son today. In Jesus' name we ask it, Lord, for his glory. Amen. So I want you to go to John chapter 1. We're just going to look at these times when John says the life and see what it says about the life. All right, number one, this is the life, right? When we talk about Jesus Christ and we talk about being saved, do you ever take that in? Are you saved today? (laughs) You realize what you got today, what you got? This is the life that lights your way. This is the life that lights your way. Look in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so Jesus Christ is God. He is the Word. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. So we're going way back now. We're going way back to Genesis 1.1. And it says, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So tell me this, my Jehovah Witness friend. How could Jesus Christ be a created being if there was nothing made without him making it? Mm -mm. Just think for a second. It might do you some good. All right. Verse number four. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You know, that's a little glimpse of the beginning, right? That's a little glimpse of way back when, when sin plunged the universe into darkness. Lucifer's rebellion and that whatever happened back there, it's a little foggy, but something done happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 that set the whole course of the universe on a chaos spiral into darkness. And you say, why does that what happened at the beginning? Because God was showing you that's what sin always does. It plunges you into darkness and sin just destroys everything. Bar none without exception, even though you think you might be the exception. That's what sin did to Adam and Eve, isn't it? That's what the Bible says when he talks about the deceitfulness of sin. You see, because the devil, go back to me in the garden. Remember the garden? The devil tempted man with illumination. He tempted man with enlightenment. If they would take the forbidden fruit, if they would eat from what God said not to eat. And what happened? The opposite happened. The contrary happened. The only thing sin delivered to Adam and Eve and the human race was darkness. It just delivered separation and alienation from the true light, Jesus Christ. That's what it does. That's how Lucifer rolls. Lucifer, the light bearer. He promises you illumination from something God forbids. Right? I wonder, what is the forbidden fruit God's warned you about? Something God has said, don't partake of that. Don't join up with that. 
Don't take that in, whether it's a thought or a relationship or an ideology or whatever it is. I'm not going to name the sin, but that's how Satan rolls. He just he can't make you do anything. He just rolls up and says, you know, if you do that, it'll be so much better. If you touch that, if you eat that, if you taste that, if you go with that person, it's going to be so much better. And my dear friend, every single time it's going to backfire. Every single time it's going to only plunge you further into a worse situation. Maybe not right away. But the Bible says, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. Right? He's promising you freedom. You know, just get out of church. Get out from under mom and dad's shackles. Get out from that Bible Christianity. Just go out and explore the world and you'll be free. Now you'll be more a slave than you ever were. Right? It's always the opposite. Don't be a sucker for Satan. Don't be punked by the enemy. When he's promising, when he's rolling up and saying, you shall be his gods, you better say, get thee behind me, Satan. Because that's exactly how he rolls. The question for us is, who are you going to listen to? We got that beautiful thing that John Calvin doesn't think we have called choice. We can choose to listen to God's warnings or we can choose to follow the ill-fated advice of the enemy. What are you going to do? What is the forbidden fruit God's warned you about? Do you know why the Lord lovingly warns you? You know why he warns you not to eat that thing or touch that thing or be with that thing? So you don't end up in pain in the dark. (laughs) That's why he says don't go after. It doesn't make God any less God when you are a fool. It makes you less joyful, happy, peaceful, more like him when you're a fool. Why does a parent tell a child not to stick a fork in the outlet. Like, oh, this fits. I've got prongs. No, don't. Why? It's not going to hurt you if they do it, but they're going to get hurt. You know what's going to happen? The lights are probably going to go out when you short something out, right? So you got to listen to what God is saying. And when the universe was in darkness back there in the beginning, you know what he said? What did he say is the antidote? Let there be light. Let there be light. You know what he did? He sent himself. And in verse number four, it says... In him was life. That light that came was life itself, Jesus Christ. And if the wages of sin is death, then God is life who came to restore life to what sin had destroyed. Amen? That's what we're talking about here. And look what it says in the rest of the verse. It says, and the life was the light of men. You see, the life that is in Jesus Christ is the light to guide our way. That life is light. It illuminates us. It wakes us up. It shows us what's right and wrong. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I feel like an astronaut ready to blast off up here. Ephesians chapter 2. You with me? You okay? All right. All right. I know it's a tough act to follow those kids, but stay with me. Ephesians 2.1. The Bible says, and he's talking to Christians here, and you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Right? That's a tough verse, but that says that before you got saved, you were dead. You were a dead man walking. Right? So when you were lost, now you weren't in the grave yet, but God says you were still dead. It's kind of just like Adam, right? Adam says, the day thou eats thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
oh, they ate that grape, and you know what? He was still standing upright, still walking, still probably had his biceps, still could probably jump his 40-inch vertical and do whatever he did before, but spiritually, he was dead. He had been separated from the one who is life. He had been separated from one who is light. You know what dead men can't do? Dead men are in the dark. Dead men can't see. Now, I'm not going to take that metaphor as far as our Calvinist friends take it. Because they say, well, dead men can't believe, and dead men can't do this. And thank goodness dead men can't listen to your nonsense, because that's what it is. But you know what? I don't mean it like that. I don't mean But you know what God did? The Bible says, even though you were dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says, the light, God says, the true light lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So even though you were dead in sins, even though you were in the dark, God sent his light for you to receive or to reject. But when you were in sins, God says you were spiritually dead. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Just flip the page maybe once or twice. Ephesians 4 verse 17. The Lord says, the Bible says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, see it, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Because the lost don't know or they don't want to know the life, they're blind. They're in the dark. He says it right there. Their understanding is darkened. Their hearts are blind because they're ignorant, willingly ignorant, which is dumb on purpose, right? They just, they don't want to know what the Bible says. They don't want to know about Jesus Christ. They don't want to come to church with you. They don't want to read that scripture sign. Even Andrew was telling me the other day that a guy whipped his car across, this truck whipped his car across the lanes of traffic just to kind of give him an American salute. That's the anger and the animosity that's in some people against the holy God, and it's sad. I don't, get, I don't think you should get any rise off that. Some Christians get a rise off that. They get some kind of weird high for being persecuted when they preach the gospel. They get some kind of weird, like, I'm going to go piss people off as much as I can, and when they get angry at me, then I really suffered for Jesus. That is not the way to be, right? There should be compassion, mercy. There should be tears in your heart and a bro- broken voice when someone's going to pull over and flip the bird on you because you're holding up a scripture sign that says Jesus saves. That should break your heart, not be like, yeah, got some persecution today. Look at me, I'm a super Christian. That's, that's a weird spirit. That doesn't remind me of Jesus Christ who wept over Jerusalem and said, how oft would I have gathered you under my you know, wings, but ye would not. That doesn't sound like the Savior who was considered the weeping prophet by some, but that was free. You could just think about that. Um, but the lost don't know, and the lost are in the dark. Can I ask you something? Do you remember what it was like to be in the dark? Some of you may have got saved as little kids. You don't remember. I got saved when I was 20. Some of you got saved just a few years ago. Some of you got saved just a few weeks ago. Some of you got saved just a few months ago. Do you remember what it was like to be in the dark? What it was like, as our dear Pastor Dean says, to be lost. To not have that life, to not know which way the compass was pointing, to not know where north was headed, to not know what life was all about. Do you remember, can you, can you go back to five minutes before you got saved, or maybe a week before you got saved, or maybe a month before you got saved, or maybe just when you were searching and panting and desperate to know what is the way, what is the truth, what is the life? 
when you were just knew you were going to die and knew you were on your way to hell and knew that there was nothing you could do to crawl out from that pit. And all of a sudden, the gospel came into your life. The light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, shined unto you. Anybody remember when that happened? Do you remember when you got saved and the lights got turned on? I remember when Jesus Christ flipped the circuit breaker in my soul and the lights came on and I was like, kind of like Eli's testimony in his track. That's why Jesus died. That's what happens after you die. That's who that man on that cross was. And this illumination, when God just gives you real illumination, because you guys look as dead as a doornail right now. I hope some of you remember that time. (laughs) I hope some of you remember the fact when God called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you get so used to being in the light, you forget what it was like to be in the dark. And there's so many people out there, they're in the dark. And you're in the light as he is in the light. John 8, 12. Let's go to that verse. John 8, 12. John 8, 12. Flip over there. You ever wonder why Jesus Christ healed so many blind men? Why did he heal blind men? You know, blind Bartimaeus and blind this guy and blind that guy. Why do you heal blind men? Because the life he came to bring would let us see. The life he came to bring would light our way. John 8, 12. Familiar verse. Great verse. I am, Jesus says, again unto them, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. See, the life that you've got, it lights your way. It illuminates you. It lets you see now why you're here, where you're going, where you've been. That's the light of life. You know what scientists have discovered? Some scientists out in Japan about 14, 15 years ago discovered that living things emit light even like low levels that you can't see, but they see it on this infrared. Like if they were going to do infrared of you, your body emits a low level of light. When you're dead, it's gone. There is really a light of life physically, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the light of life spiritually. That if you're alive in Jesus Christ, you have the light of life. You have the light of life to shine in this dark world and guide your way. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. This is the life that lights your way. Never forget where you were without him. Number two, go to John chapter 6. Giving up on this thing. John chapter 6, verse number 47. Number one, this is the life that lights your way. Number two, this is the life that lives forever. This is the life that lives and lasts forever. Look at John 6, 47. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This, meaning himself, is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You know, in the wilderness, those Israelites had to go out every day and gather manna. 
Monday, what are we going to have? Mana pancakes. Tuesday, mana, mana souffle. Wednesday, mana gumbo. I feel like, you know, I'm like the guy from Forrest Gump, right? Uh, this shrimp, that shrimp. You know, this, what is it? Bubba, right? Bubba, right? Mana this and mana that and mana this every day. And if you didn't go get the mana, the Bible says it bred worms and stank. It would rot if you left it alone. And even if you did go get some manna on Tuesday, you still had to get up and get more manna on Wednesday. And in John 6, 49, he says right there, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Even if you ate manna every day like you were supposed to, you did not have eternal life. Like you have it sitting here today. Because that bread, that manna was physical. It wasn't spiritual. John 6, 50, look what he says. This is the bread which cometh, which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. What he's saying is the life that Jesus Christ came to bring would last forever. It would be permanent life. It would give you never-ending life. You take that in? Wow! Under the law, here's the picture of Moses and getting manna. Under the law... You had to keep coming to maintain good standing with God. You had to keep coming. You had to keep enduring. You had to keep sacrificing. You had to stay faithful. You know what salvation was on in the Old Testament? It was on a layaway plan. Now, not too many kids in the audience. They're like, what's layaway? You know, but layaway was back in the day. You know, I worked a little retail. You'd want to buy that leather jacket for $800, which now you have to buy for $1,800, and you'd buy that leather jacket for $800, and you'd put on a plan, and you'd pay a little bit, you know, every week or month or whatever, and then at the end of that, you'd be able to get that leather jacket. Salvation in the Old Testament was on layaway. If you didn't keep up the payments, you lost it. If you didn't maintain that good standing with God, you were cut off. And you didn't get to enjoy that eternal life. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Let me clarify it a little further for you. That makes sense? Amen. Everybody born before 1990 is like, oh yeah, I got you. I'm with you. Right? The millennials and the Gen Z people are like, what's layaway? I just used my mom's credit card. Right? <laughs> Hebrews chapter I heard it. One amen. I see that hand. Hebrews 10. All right? Hebrews 10.1. Hebrews 10.1. The Bible says, for the law, that's Moses, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image, right? So Jesus Christ, you could not get Jesus Christ in the law. You couldn't get eternal life in the law. Not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. You see... Under Moses' law, you had to be a continual comer. You had to be faithful. You had to endure. You had to continue in the things that God told you because the atonement wasn't complete. The, the, uh, the sacrifice wasn't finished. Now you go to Hebrews 7, 10, 7, and look what it says. Then said I, this is Jesus speaking, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. To do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. You think God loves seeing goats get slain 
and bullocks get hacked? You think God liked that? You think God is some kind of twisted God who, yeah, yeah, bring another turtle dove. No, God was trying to teach people something about the sacrifice for sin until the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, could come to take away the sin of the world. But he was teaching us something. And he said he had no pleasure in that stuff. He wasn't thrilled with the fact that you go to your field and go to your calves or go to your flocks and bring something and get its neck slain and the blood drip out and you just watch its life drain out of its body. God says, I have no pleasure in that, but I'm teaching you something. Verse 9, then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, meaning Moses' law, that he may establish the second, Jesus Christ, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to give himself once for all, verse 10, forever, verse 12. That's why Jesus Christ's final cry from the cross was, It is finished! Jesus Christ came to complete the atonement to make eternal life available once for all. Now, I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Because whenever I say things like this, I make you uncomfortable, so I might as say it at the beginning. How sad that so many people are still trying to pay for what Jesus Christ finished paying on the cross. It's, it's almost insulting. I mean, I'm just going to say it, and I don't mean any hatred in my heart at all. One point three billion Catholics in the world. 1.3 billion. That's a lot of people. They're still being told they need to come every Sunday to eat Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm not angry at anybody. That's just the truth. I'm not, I'm not even mocking it. They're told you have to come every Sunday and eat Jesus. You so say, I don't like the way you're saying it. I'm just saying it the way, way you mean it. You, you think you need to come every Sunday to eat Jesus. Oh, no, I have to receive. Yeah, you have to eat Jesus, right? I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not hating, I'm not bashing, but that's your doctrine. If you don't eat Jesus, you don't maintain your life. You don't have a state of grace. And I'm not just going to pick on one group. There are so many sects in, quote, unquote, Christendom that say you need to keep making payments whether it's through baptism or good works or liturgies or whatever it is, so many sects or groups are saying, if you don't make the payments, you're going to lose it. So many people are living in the wrong testament. They're living like we're still following Moses and Jesus Christ never came. Because under Moses, yeah, you had to get up, you had to gather manna, you had to continue, you had to keep going. But Jesus said, it is finished. So you see, error... Heresy is always truth misapplied. Very often it's truth in the wrong dispensation. And that's what's going on here. People are living like they're still in the Old Testament. But look at verse 51. Could you with me? Go back to John chapter 6, I should say, first. John chapter 6. I'm hurrying. Don't worry. 
John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 51. That, was, that wasn't too hateful, right? I was, I'm not angry at anybody, right? Just trying to point something out to you. John chapter 6, verse 651. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Hey, he's saying, hey, I'm heavenly bread. Amen. I'm not earthly bread. You've got to receive me in your heart, Amen. not in your mouth. Amen. Keep reading, verse 52. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They missed it. <laughs> they missed it. The skeptics in that crowd missed the spiritual point that Jesus Christ was making. Now look at verse 57. He tries to go a little further. Not only did they miss the point, they missed the simile that Jesus Christ was painting. You want to, you know, all right, let me get, on my, let me get my English teacher on. Figurative language, folks. <laughs> like our good friend Forrest Gump would say, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, right? Now, if you thought literally that life was a box of chocolates and you said, you know, you know I'm just going to take in some life and you bit it and say, what's that pink stuff? What part of life is that? You're crazy, right? If somebody says love is a bed of roses and you jump into a bed of roses and go, I'm in love, you're nuts. <laughs> right? If you can't tell the difference between literal and figurative, you're something wrong with the way you're processing reality. And he's saying, hey, my flesh is bread. My flesh is for you to eat. If you think that means you've got to have a Jesus hamburger, you're not processing reality properly. Right? You're missing the metaphor. If you miss a metaphor, you miss the whole meaning of what God is saying. I am the door. You're not supposed to walk into Jesus to get to heaven. You know, like, where is he? You know, I got to bang through him. I am the good shepherd. You don't get down. You're not supposed to do that, right? They're figurative. They're figures of speech, okay? When my mom used to say, you're as dumb as a rock, I didn't think I was sedimentary or anything like that. I got what she was saying. You got a head like a rock? I said, I know, I got some Sicilian blood in me. I understand what you're talking about, right? It's a simile. Look at verse 57. Uh, and you know how you find a simile? Like or as. That's how you find them, class. As the, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. He's saying the same way I live off the strength my Father gives me is the same way you're going to get spiritual strength from me. That's the simile that Jesus Christ was painting in this whole bread of life thing, and they missed it. Did Jesus Christ ever put his father in his mouth? Oh, father, I need to live by you. You know, just cut off a piece of yourself and drop it down. I'll take it medium rare. No. You say, why are you going to be like that? Because we're so inundated with this philosophy, we think it's offensive to kind of like poke fun at it a little bit. It's madness. And so many of our loved ones are trapped in it. But it's madness to think you need to eat Jesus every week to maintain good standing with God. Verse 61, not only did they miss the point and the simile, then Jesus Christ just comes right out and says it in verse 61. He says, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured, he said unto them, doth this offend you? I feel like asking you that question. 62, what and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Right? 
He's saying, if you think it's my flesh, what are you going to do when I ascend to heaven and I'm not here anymore? You're going to be out of luck. Where's the beef? All right. Verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh, and he's talking about his own flesh. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He's saying, guys, you don't need my toes. You need my truth. You don't need my, my hands. You need to let this into your heart. It's spiritual. Amen. You know, as you study history, it's only pagan cultures that believe that when you consume something with your mouth, you're attributed with some kind of power. That's historically a pagan idea. Some pagan tribes would eat their enemies that they vanquished so they could assimilate their power into themselves. That's a pagan philosophy. That's a pagan idea. And folks, that lie began in the garden when the devil tempted Eve to put something in her mouth. That, that, that idea did not originate with God. That originated with Satan who said, ye shall be as gods. He says, just take this and you get initiated into this thing and then you can become God. You see, Satan is always trying to convince people that salvation is still an ongoing process. Ye shall be as gods. Oh no, I'm a son of God right now. I'll be something later, but I'm a son of God right now. I got all of Jesus Christ right now. And one day, I'm going to break this shell open, and you'll see what I really look at on the inside. But you know what? You got all of God when you got saved. You're not becoming saved like new translations alter the Bible to read. You are saved if you have Jesus Christ. You have been saved if you have Jesus Christ. You're not becoming saved. That's, that's heresy. That's real, that's real subtle, ain't it? Just real slick. That's how he rolls. John chapter 5, verse 39. Let me keep going there. Stay with me. John 5, 39. Look what Jesus says here. He says in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You know what he's saying? I'm eternal life. I'm the one the book talks about. And when you receive God's words by faith, you get eternal life once for all forever. Hallelujah. Biblical salvation is a person, not a process. It's a person, not a process. Like John writes, this is the true God in eternal life. Right? Now, I'm going to date myself again. How many of you remember? Don't raise a hand a movie and a show called Fame. Right, way back in the day. Fame. Right? And way back in the day, there was this show, this movie called Fame. And I'm looking at half the room has no idea they like Fame. Fame. It was about these kids at the high school performing arts. And I was thinking yesterday, this is how my brain works, I was thinking about the theme song of that, that show, that movie. And I'm not going to sing it, Lydia, all right? I'm thinking about it, but uh, I just want to try to keep my job. But anyway, no. The, the theme goes... The chorus goes, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. I'm going to make it to heaven. Light up the sky like a flame. I'm going to live forever. And it's, this, you know, they're dancing and they're doing their plies and their whatever, their kickball turns, whatever they're doing. I don't know a lot of stuff, whatever it is. And, they're, they're, and it's their wish and this desire because they're going to make it big and I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. You know what? That, that's a picture of the lost world. 
I want to live forever. I'm going to try to do all I can to live forever. I'm going to try to do all I can to... Can I tell you something? If you're saved, that wish is your future. And as crazy as it sounds, I was thinking about that song and I was weeping because I'm going to live forever. I'm going to fly, folks. I'm going to light up the sky like a flame. I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm going to live forever. Because this life that we have lives forever. And lastly, go with me to John chapter 11. That's, that's the wish of a lot of people. It's our future. It's our reality. John 11, verse 18. This is the life that lights your way. This is the life that lives forever. This is the life, I want to say lastly, that liberates you, that makes you free. John eleven eighteen, Jesus Christ is at a funeral. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ the Son of God, which should come into the world. Have you been there? While your loved one lied cold in the grave? In a scene shrouded by death, Jesus Christ offers hope to those who are hurting. In verse 25, he's saying, listen, just because Lazarus' body lay cold in the grave, that doesn't mean I can't raise him up, and I will. In verse 24, Martha's like, yeah, I know you will. And the Jews in the Old Testament, they knew they would. They knew of a resurrection at the end. They knew of a resurrection, Job 19, Daniel 12, John chapter 5. Those Jews kind of knew about a resurrection that would come at the end. But they didn't understand that Jesus Christ was going to be that resurrection beforehand. They didn't see that clearly. And they didn't have to wait for a future date. They had Christ in their presence. They didn't have to wait for some kind of click on the eschatological whatever calendar. They had the life right there. And in a world that's shrouded by death, Jesus Christ offers hope to those of us who are hurting. Because my brethren, as pervasive and powerful as death seems, it cannot stand against the person of Jesus Christ. It cannot stand against the life. It has no power against the life. That's why when you read the Gospels, nobody ever died in the presence of Jesus Christ. All he ever did was break up funerals. Even on the cross, he gave up the ghost before those two thieves. He was dead already when they came to break their legs because nobody died in the presence of the one who is the life. What a Savior, what a Savior, what a Savior. You know, gravity is a powerful force. Keeps everyone and everything down. Amen?
Keeps us all down. Man, I lo- wouldn't you love to fly? <laughs> I ask my students sometimes, what superpower would you rather have? Invisibility or flight? So many of them pick invisibility. And it's always for the wrong reason. I want to steal something. I'm like, you're weird. You know, but me? I put on many a cape as a little kid. Jumped off my bed to see if I get some hang time a little longer. Who does not want to fly? I mean, I don't know if you don't keep it to yourself, but who would not want to be able to, you know, go from here to Venus or here to Jupiter and have nothing and just fly to cosmos, go to here in Paris in the blink of an eye? I mean, flight to fly? Wow. Gravity's a powerful force, keeps everyone down, but gravity can be overcome by a greater law. That's how planes can fly. The laws of thrust and all that stuff, I don't understand. That allows a plane to lift off and fly and overcome the lesser law of gravity. A greater law can overcome the lesser law. Romans chapter 7, please. Romans chapter 7, please. Romans 7, verse 21. The Bible says, Paul's writing here, the great apostle Paul saying this, right? This great Christian that he supposedly was. He says in Romans 7, 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So you're not alone that you're struggling with sin. You're not alone that you face temptation. You're not alone that you feel like, what the heck is going on with me? Because the greatest Christian that we know ever lived is saying, I'm trying to do right, and that's not a description of his unsaved condition. That's him as a believer saying, I'm trying to do good, and there's something trying to always pull me back and mess me up. I find that a law. He said, it's not a coinkadink. It's a law. It's a principle. You can bank on it. I find that a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, my hands, my feet, my, my mind, my toes, my tongue, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then 24, he lets out this cry that if you're saved any length of time, you have to let out this cry. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. Lord, how long before I get rid of these hands and this heart and this mind and this tongue and this toes and all this stuff that's always trying to pull me away from you. Oh, wretched man that I present tense am. Good preaching, Paul. (laughs) I know I'm sure he's the only one that ever felt that way. He's trying to be liberated from the law of sin and death. That love, sin, and death that works in our members, that's still in this unsaved corpse, this lost corpse. As Pastor Dean would say, you're only two-thirds saved. And this unsaved sack of skin and sack of sin that you're still dragging around, that I still know you try to make it look good. I'm glad you shower it. I'm glad you bathe it. Because if you go a couple of days, this rotting corpse will remind you that's a body of death. It'll remind you of that. It's a body of death. Aren't you longing to be liberated? Aren't you longing to be made free? What was Jesus talking about? Freedom to, you know, keep your money when you work? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being free indeed. Free of this thing. Free of sin and death and hell. That's true freedom, folks. And in Romans 8, 2, he says this. Romans 8, 2, he says, The law of the Spirit of life 
in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He said, I'm trying to get free of this one law, but there is a greater law that can overcome all this death. That's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That Jesus Christ has the power to overcome the sin that's dragging you down. It's a greater law. Go to Romans 1. I'll show you about it. Romans 1. Romans 1. I just got a couple of stops left. I know the burgers are getting cold. Relax. I did it again. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You know what Jesus Christ had? You know what Jesus Christ's resurrection proved to everybody? He's a greater law. He's a greater power than even death itself. Can't you see your Savior walking out of that tomb on that Saturday evening at 6.01 p.m. Can't you see the heavenly host rejoicing and cheering? Can't you imagine? I'm sure Gabriel was looking for a pot or a pan to just bang. You know, Michael, get the fireworks. I'm sure they were going crazy up there in heaven when their captain, when their chief rose again and it was God's declaration that this is the one who has the power even over death itself and he says, I got the keys of hell and of death. That's your savior, beloved. This is the life that we have. Somebody that could stand up to your greatest foe, death itself, and say, Small potatoes. That's because he was holy. Because he had no sin in his members. He had no corruption to keep him back. He had nothing the devil could pin him down with. The spirit of holiness allowed him to be declared, I am the Son of God. I am God manifest in the flesh. I am holy and without sin, made higher than the heavens. I'm the one that can defeat death. That tells you right there. He ain't Michael the archangel. He ain't, you know, a, a prophet or a good man. He's the Son of God. Amen. And you're going to see him one day. Amen. And it's, it's, it's that, res, that power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. That resurrection power lives in you. Amen. To raise your lives from the dead to give you a resurrected walk, perhaps. Brethren, I'll be honest with you. Not that I'm dishonest with you other times. I'll be finished soon. If I had access to someone or something that could heal my son in an instant like that, you know, no more chemo, right, sister? No more chemo, no more radiation, no more this, no more checks, no more, you know, more screenings, no more CBCs, no more, no more, no more lumbar punctures. If I had something like that, if I had access to power like that, I'd avail myself to it. You'd be crazy not to, right? Who would not avail themselves to power that could do something miraculous like that? If I know some of you went through some of the things you've gone through health-wise, my goodness, if I had the power to just wave my magic wand and make it go away, wouldn't you avail yourself to that? And if the life 
inside of you has all that power? Can I ask you something? Why don't you plug into Jesus Christ more? Why don't you fellowship with Him more? Why don't you come to church more? Why don't you pray more? Why don't you read your Bible more? Why don't you walk with God more? He's got the power to raise Himself from the dead. This is the life that we have. And if Jesus Christ could free you from death, what else does He have the power to help you with? Relationships? Finances? Peace? I don't know. John 11, go back there. We're going to go back to John 11. Am I making any sense to anybody? You know, as of late, even reading these verses, you read Jesus Christ in the Bible. You know, you read it, it's a name on a page, but can't you wait to see him? Like, you're going to see this person. You're going to look upon him. John said, our hands have handled. We're going to handle him. You think he's not going to let us fall at his feet? Grab him by the ankles like the apostles did and disciples did? You think he's going to say, stay back? No, he's going to come down off that throne. And I'm sure he's going to open his arms wide. And I'm sure there's going to be about 10 billion people that have been saved just running to him. And only God could embrace that many people probably at one time. But that's how he is. So that name, Jesus Christ, on the page is not a doctrine or philosophy or an ideology. It's a person with all this power who said, I'll, I'll give it to you. Wow. And in John eleven twenty five, 25, he says this. I am the resurrection and the life. Now watch this real careful. Ready? He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. You know what that means? When the life returns... Because that's who Jesus Christ is, right? He's the life, and he's coming back, right? Amen? Just nod your head, right? Jesus Christ is coming back. The Bible says that more than he says he came the first time. It says he's coming the second time. And when Jesus Christ, the life, returns, neither death nor the grave will be able to keep its hold on you. He says, John eleven twenty five. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Because when he comes back, those that are asleep in Christ are going to rise. And we got a slew of people. We thought about John Murphy last week. And we could go down the line of names that even I tick off. I look around this room and I got names of people that used to sit where you sat, that we miss and we long for. Denise. Mike. Ray. People that John. People that we miss, right? They're going to come up. Because death won't be able to hold them back. When the life summons them, mom and dad. Right, brother? When life summons them, death won't be able to keep their prey. But you know what? Not just What about us who are still walking? Mom, right? What about those of us that are still walking around? We hear that trumpet sound. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Those of us that are walking around, guess what? 
We're never going to taste of death. We're never going to see death. He says, I got the whole thing covered. I got the ones in the grave, and I got the ones walking around. When the life returns, it ain't going to be anything to you. It's not going to be able to hold you. We sing the song, death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Do you think that power stopped at the tomb? When he shows up, he's going to bust some graves open. He's going to change your bodies. He's going to put on immortality. And when Jesus Christ returns, he will make you free indeed. And death and the grave will be powerless to stop you. Because he is the life. And the promise of life at that funeral was meant to give us hope when we're hurting that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And in verse 26, you see right there at the end of the verse, all Jesus Christ wants to know is, believest thou this? Do you believe? Not just know. See, verse 24, she said, I know. I know. But now he says, do you believe? Do you trust? Do you have confidence in? Are you leaning on it? I've said this before. Can I get these verses are very personal to me? John 11, 25, 26. These are the last verses I shared with my dad about 15 and a half years ago. I visited him on a Sunday afternoon after church. He was in a nursing home recovering from a, from a clot operation in his dialysis shunt in his arm. And I read this to him. I sat next to him. He was aware, cognizant. Adriana was there as a baby. Uh, CJ was a little guy, and I sat next to him right, like, like this, and he was sitting in the bed laying like that, and awake, and we're chatting, and I, I read this portion of Scripture to him, and I ended with that, that, that question, believest thou this? Walked out of the room, I never got his answer. Do you believe? Do you believe? Don't let life go by without answering the question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Finish. We go, let's go to John 14, 6. I got just two very quick stops left. John 14, 6 and Colossians 3. This is my conclusion. This is our fourth mention. This is the life that lights your way. This is the life that lives forever. This is the life that liberates you. And this is the life that's limited to Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is very, very exclusionary language that still triggers people to this day. It's not inclusive, it's exclusive. It's only Him. And if you don't have the life, you're still in the dark. You're still dead in sins. If you don't have the life, you cannot enjoy peace with God, eternal life with God. And if you don't, if you're not part of the life, death still has its hold on you. And you're going to share in death's fate. Because death and hell one day will be cast into the lake of fire. And if death has got its hold on you, you're going where he's going. You've got to be made free. You've got to be liberated. You've got to be saved. Colossians 3 is our last verse. Just read this with me. Colossians 3. This is the life that's limited to Jesus Christ. 
Colossians 3, verse 1. Colossians 3, 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, amen, if that's you, are you saved? Amen. Are you saved? Amen. Oh, that's really still weak. Three, two, are you saved? Amen. I just talked about the life you have. Don't, don't die on me now. All right, pun intended. All right. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, let's read it. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ, he is your life. And you need to know he's not just part of your life. Listen, if you're alive physically... Oxygen is not just part of your life. You have no life without it. Ask our dear sister Terry that's been, you know, having some breathing issues, right? You know, oxygen is not part of your life. It is your life. It's what gives you life. That's why you need it. It's what you live on. It's what runs through your body. It's what you need. And if you're alive in Christ, how could you separate the Savior from everything you do? If he's your life, how could you have any life without him? Colossians 3.11 says, Christ is all. I mean, how could you cut him out of your relationships if you claim to be saved? How could you cut him out of your decisions if you claim to have him as your counselor? How could you, how could you cut him out of your time schedule. How, I'm too busy, God. Too busy. Too busy to breathe. I'm your life. I'm your life. I'm not part of your life. Or have you remanded him to a couple of hours on a Sunday and thank goodness, God, I give you even that much. Right? He is the life. He is your life. I'm not saying you got to put your keys in the offering and go to Bongo Bongo Lamb, but hey man, he is your life. Take that wherever it lands. Paul would say, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, I'm only alive now because he gave me life. I can only walk now because he lets me walk. I deserve to be in hell and he gave me so much more. So if you're saved, I hope I impressed one thing upon you. This is the life. It's life, it's light, it's liberty in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's bow our heads, please. <clears throat>